So some of the things we're going to look at this morning, the last time that we really nailed this down in Romans was September 13th. Uh, we've had a lot happen personally since then with the, with the birth of a child and, and how wonderful that's been. And uh, what an amazing trooper uh, and champion my wife is. Uh, absolutely amazing woman. Um, but when we get back on track here with these things, we've looked at the idea of the carnal and the spiritual man as far as being saved, but also the solical man as being unsaved. And the reason why we wanted to look at that was to understand that scripturally speaking, it is a possibility for a Christian to be disobedient to the point of even being given the designation of being carnal. Now, all of this is moving towards how do you exercise spiritual gifts, which we will probably get to in the new year. And if we don't know how to be spiritual Christians, we can't exercise our spiritual gifts in a spiritual manner. And so I think it's important that as we're breaking these things down, I mean, this is what Romans is teaching us, is how to be spiritually mature believers. Uh, Romans 7 is probably one of the most hotly contested chapters in all of church history. And so I think it's important for us to back up a little bit and get a running start with a few pertinent points uh, so that we can get nestled into Romans 7 and understand moving forward. And uh, I'll just go ahead and tell you, uh, there's a lot that goes into studying through Romans 7. There's a lot of viewpoints by a lot of people that you uh, respect. There's a lot of things in the text that cause you to ask questions. And so my goal today with you, and especially with this handout that I put together, uh, was, is, is to show you the struggle and the tension that comes with Bible study like this and why it's important us as Christians that we prayerfully walk through these things and give it our due diligence. We're called to rightly divide the word of truth as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And that definitely goes beyond just a cursory three-minute reading of the passage. Uh, it is important that we're recognizing some things in our life that need to be set aside and done without for the sake of being engrossed in God's word so that we understand exactly what he has done and how he works with us. So uh, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to uh, encourage you, educate you, inform you on what we're going to look at. So one of the first things we need to look at here is in chapter five of Romans. You look at verses 18 through 21. It says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Uh, and real quick, if we remember this condemnation that came, this one transgression is through Adam when he sinned. This condemnation is the fact that we have been uh, given over to servanthood to sin, that we now serve sin when we're born into this world. And We've talked about this a little bit, but regardless if we recognize it or not, when we're born into this world, we're servants of Satan. We are um, living according to his means, and all that has to do is not, you know, we're not, uh, you know, sacrificing goats and lighting weird candles and dancing around in loincloths and weird things like that with pentagrams all over our house. It just has to be the simple fact that we're just extreme lovers of ourselves. And all we care about is gratifying ourselves in a situation. That's really what Satanism is. It's, it's selfishness. And, and so when we see this idea that we've been given over because of Adam's sin to a servitude to sin or to slavery to sin, it's a problem. And notice that it's come, it says in 18, to all men. But I'm so thankful that it gives us hope. Even so, through one act of righteousness, and we know that being the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now that's important because that's what sets us free from the servitude of sin. And justification of life, notice what it says, all men. The gospel has been made available to all people, every single person. It is not just an exclusive group. And this is why our mandate is to go out and make disciples of all people, all nations, going throughout and telling them about the goodness of Jesus Christ and his death for us and building them up in everything that he's taught us. So notice an explanation, verse 19, 4. As through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now notice that we understand many there as all because it corresponds with what we saw in verse 18. 
Uh, there was nobody that was ever not a sinner when they were born into this world, save the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And that's because he was conceived of the spirit, not of a male. So it's important for us to understand that. It says here, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many or all can be made righteous. And that is being made righteous in our spirits. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, our spirit is made righteous and becomes a suitable habitat because the Holy Spirit indwells and cleans house. And our spirit now has a resonant uh, relationship with the things of God. Verse 20, dun, 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 here it comes. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now pay attention to that because that's a lot of what we're looking at today. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded. And if you don't have that highlighted, marked, underlined, dog-eared, post-it note, whatever, man, you need to. In fact, you need to go through every Bible that you have at home and highlight this, this passage right here. Grace abounded. Regardless of how much sin we think has overcome, and that serves to discourage us quite well, especially if we know that the law is going to amplify that sin, don't lose heart. God's grace has abounded all the more. Verse 21, why? So that, let me see here. As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whereas before we knew Christ, death reigned. I mean, let's be honest, that's all we had to look forward to. This life was the best it was going to get, and then death is what came next. Not a very hopeful future. Well, as death reigned or it loomed over our life in that time, even so, grace can reign. Grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what that is, is that God's grace reigns when we are submitting ourselves to the Lord Jesus. That way, the victory that he's already secured becomes a present experience or a present reality. Now, that's Paul dropping a truth statement, and then he's using chapter 6 to unfold how that happens. So when we get into chapter 6, we're dealing with the idea of knowing that we're dead to sin. When Christ died to sin, we died with him to sin. No, reckoning the fact that we are alive to God through Jesus Christ. So we need to consider that fact to be so. And then... Because of the fact that we're reckoning, we need to present our bodies to God as instruments for his righteous purposes. So we're going to pick up at chapter 6, verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Now, if you notice there, the idea of reigning takes you back to chapter 5, verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why do we bring that up? Because what Paul is telling you is the fact that now that you have a righteous standing in Christ, that doesn't mean that your daily experience and the choices that you make are automatically righteous. But you now have the ability because of the indwelling spirit and the new life that you've been given to say no to sin. So if that's the case, is it possible for a believer in Christ to allow for sin to reign in their mortal body? Yes, it is. And I want you to read 12 again. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And I want you to pay attention to that word lust there. It's possible for sin to reign so that we would be chasing after it, following every whim, uh, craving the things that it's pointing us towards so that our flesh is appeased and our spirit is put on the back burner. We don't want to submit to the old master of sin. We don't have to. We've been set free. Now notice in 13 and 14, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. That word presenting there, looking at it like a King James translation, it'll have the idea of yielding yourself. It's the idea of putting up your hands and letting that, that uh, opportunity take place and you're going along with it kind of thing. Notice, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. Notice it sins in the singular, indwelling sin, the sin nature. But present or yield yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. There's our power and your members as instruments of righteousness 
to God because Christ has made that possible. Now watch this, verse 14. For sin shall not be master. Notice that master relates to the reigning concept in verse 12. Over you, and here it is, the two areas. For you are not under law, but under grace. Law and grace. Law and grace. Here's, here's the bad thing about our views that we could, or the baggage we could bring to the text about law. As we could look at this, and we could easily conclude that the law is bad. I mean, we saw that the law amplifies our sin. It arouses sin within our bodies, and so we don't like that. And so we could conclude that it is the problem. I think of it like a basket. Uh, there, there might not be anything wrong with the basket of grace, of course, and all the good things that are in it. And there might not be anything wrong with the basket of law, which there isn't. It's the things inside the basket of law that we find all kinds of problems. That's sin, that's death, that's lust, that's the breaking of everything that God ever wanted. And what we find out is the basket's not the problem. The problem is, is the contents within the basket. And it's summed up in one word in the singular, S-I-N, the sin nature. So now that we have that down, let's turn to seven and start in verse one. Do, or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. Now, immediately you would say, okay, those who know the law, those are Jewish believers. Notice that the law has jurisdiction, it has dominion over a person as long as he lives. Living people are subject to the laws, dead people are not. Now he's going to give you the illustration. And again, we're covering this, so I'm going quickly. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. In other words, that law is made powerless in relation to her. She's set free. Verse 3, so then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. Now, real quick, she is free from the law. That is the purpose of this chapter. The title of this sermon and the next two or three sermons that we're going to have within this Living the Christ Life is called Weak, But Not Weak enough. We understand that we need salvation from our sins, the offenses that we've committed against God. But we have a problem in that we do not yet understand that we've been delivered from the law. If anyone, any Christian, well-meaning, uh, sincere as can be, tries to tell us that we need to keep the law in any way, they are wrong. They are not biblical they do not understand that we have died to the law. And we're going to explain, we're going to unfold why this is such a big deal, why it's so heavy over the next two or three weeks, why Paul returns to this concept of the law. So notice, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Now previously, whether we understood it or not, we were wedded to the law. And so what happens in order for us to get unwedded to the law or to be set free from our requirements to the law that we need to uh, uh, have in order to be considered acceptable before God is that death has to take place. That way we can be set free and we can be joined to Christ. But the problem is, is that the law never passes away. And why should it? There's nothing wrong with it. Why should anything perfect pass away? It's not obligated to in any way. There's no fault found in it to where God needs to condemn it and destroy it in any way we're not told that but what we find out is is verse 4 is the answer therefore my brethren you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ who needs to die in this relationship the wife does and we are the wife and we have died in Christ when he died so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God now, this is fantastic because we have a new husband. Instead of being married to the law, which we could never find anything wrong with, we've now died in Christ and his death for us. And when you believe in Christ, you are baptized into his death and you are raised to a newness of life. And the idea here is now that we have the ability to bear fruit to God, which we never had that before. We are now joined to him. And the great thing about this husband is that he never required for us to sign a prenup, and divorce is never an argument that's on the table. He is with us until the end, constantly, 
constantly. That is the biblical view of marriage, not summed up so much in man and wife, but summed up in Christ and his church. It's something that operates in this new sphere of grace. Verse 5, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Now, a couple of things about this verse. Notice at the end of verse 4, we can now bear fruit for God. This would be the fruit of the Spirit as you see in Galatians 5. We, we would understand that. Those are the things that come out. Why? Because it's the Spirit's fruit that's coming out. It's not all of a sudden that Jesus has given us a changed life. That's not what it's about. Jesus has given us an exchanged life. He's not worried about changing the current life that we have. He's asking for us to exchange our lives so that his life can live through us. And when his life lives through us, the fruit of the Spirit is what comes out. So notice when he says, while we were in the flesh, and I'm going to take this to understand that when, when we were in a unregenerate state. Now, what do we mean by unregenerate? Let's break that down because we could throw around a lot of Christianese and, and not everybody follow along. When you talk about unregenerate, we're talking about people that are lost. We're talking about people that don't know Jesus. We're talking about people who do not have a relationship with Jesus, who have not believed in Christ. And this is how every single person starts out when they're born. So while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit to death. That was the result. So the idea here is that the law or the commandments are going to aggravate our sin nature. And here's the thing, we would go hook, line, and sinker along with it at the beginning because we don't know any better. We don't have any alternative. If it feels good, do it. It's the idea of appeasing our emotions. And so what we find in this law category is the idea that sin, the sin nature that's there indwelling, or we would also call that the flesh, that's the resource that we pull from. That's the self-life. What we find is that the products from, the products that spring forth from the indwelling sin uh, is sins. Those are the multiple offenses that we commit against a holy God that we needed the, the blood of Jesus Christ to atone for. And of course, the result, as you see here in the passage, is death. That's the only fruit that comes from it. Everything is going to be death. This is why when a Christian is not operating in the spirit, the good works that they would be doing in the flesh are in the law category, not in the grace category, and they have no merit before God. So hopefully everybody's with me. Just say yes to wake yourself up if you need to. In verse 6, but now we have been released from the law, and we take this as being in the regenerate state. This is when somebody hears the gospel and believes the Holy Spirit takes up residence within their spirit, and God makes them alive or regenerates them makes them alive. Now we've been released from the law. We've been set free from it. Why? Having died to that by which we were bound. Why? So that we serve, now watch this, in the newness of the spirit, that's in the grace category, and not in the oldness of the letter. That is in the law category. One of the greatest problems we have is that too many Christians try to serve God by the law, and that just results in legalism and failure. We often gauge that by how well we're doing compared to our Christian brother or sister that we've had interaction with. And when somebody uh, divulges their weaknesses that they're struggling with, I need prayer for a certain situation, uh, what have you that goes on within the body of the church, we are very much tempted to look at the failures or inadequacies that that person is struggling with and to make ourselves superior. And when we do that, we fall into legalism. That's everything to do in the law category. There's nothing gracious about that. However, serving in the spirit, that's something completely different because it's done by love and it produces holiness in our lives. And what we're going to see is it's accomplished by us doing absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. I don't want you to mistake what I'm saying there. Absolutely nothing. So now how do we move forward here? Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Remember, Paul anticipates the argument because he's not doing a back and forth text message. Is the law sin? Now I don't know about you, that would be the first place I would go. Because what I don't want to do is I don't want to point the finger to myself. 
What I want to do is I want to find somebody else to blame, and then that way I can become the victim. It's the law's fault. Let's blame the law. If God would have never introduced the law, I wouldn't be having all these problems that I have. So is the law sin? But Paul gives you the double negative in the Greek. May it never be. One translation I found that I love is banish the thought. Don't even think that way. Instead, here's what he says. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Now stop there. That word know, especially if you've got the the, the page printed out of Romans 7 with the double spaces, you need to know this. This word no, I would not have come to no sin, is the Greek word gnosko. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we spent some time on that. It's the idea to understand or to recognize or to learn something by experience. It always has the connotation surrounding it that there's an experience that's taken place where somebody can speak from that experience. Notice what he says here. I would not have come to no sin. I would not have come to recognize sin by experience except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. If a righteous standard, being the law, would not have come into play, how would I ever have recognized what I'm in bondage to? We are in bondage to the things that the law prohibits. And when the law says something like, you shall not covet, which is the last commandment, all of a sudden we find out that we do covet. In fact, if you want to maybe get some clarification on the word covet there, the idea is lust. It's the exact same thing, lusting after something. Now, if you remember, I was talking to you about in chapter 6, verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Why? Because when you let sin reign in your Christian experience, you capitulate to the law category and you fall prey to lust. It's never enough. You always want more. You always, say it this way, you always love stuff, and you constantly want. And it's pouring out from your heart how desperately you need to have it. It's almost like an itch that needs to be scratched in your flesh. Now, I don't know about you guys struggling with something like this, but I do. I struggle with it. There are things I see all the time. Oh, I'd love to have that. Oh, that'd be so great. Oh, that'd be so nice. And I find that there's this insatiable desire in me to want to jump forward after some things, to go after it. And for some reason, I feel like that if I had these worldly things, that somehow I would be satisfied. And you know what? It never works. If you've ever experienced that, you find out it never works. It never scratches the itch that needs to happen there. It never appeases. It never satisfies. One way that this has been translated uh, coveting is, is it's craving, it's a desire, uh, but it's also known as evil desires. It's the idea that evil has crept in and, and taken root. And, and what we find is, is the law being told we shall not covet, if we dwell upon that, what we find is, is it actually encourages our coveting. When we're told not to do something, we find that we want to do the exact opposite. You know, I've asked you guys before, close your eyes and don't think of a pink elephant on roller skates. Next thing you know, you can't get that image out of your head. That's what you're thinking about. Even though I told you not to do it, you see wet paint, you want to put your hand on it. You know, uh, I remember uh, a cartoon that I watched as a kid. Uh, This guy was put in charge of a button if you push that button, it will end the world. It will erase all history. And you see, you see this, this guy struggling and sweating, and it's killing him. He's just got to push the button, even though he knows the consequences on the other, stand, on the other side are just going to destroy him. And so he ends up pushing the button, and he ends the world. And it's funny because that's how the show ended. Um, we find ourselves wanting to be button pushers all the time, and we don't need to be. Now, before we move forward with this concept of, of lusting, uh, I want to I want to show something to you. It's a quote. It's from a book by a guy named uh, Thomas uh, Stiegel. Put it together. He's actually one of the pastors at Duluth Bible Church in Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, a fantastic book called "Freely by His Grace." He's the editor uh, of that, and many good uh, commentators and, and contributors have put some very valuable articles in this book. And I will tell you this: uh, that book is never further than an arm's length away from me when I'm studying the Bible at, at my desk. Uh, either my desk at home or my desk here at church, just to go show you I own two copies of it. That's how good it is. Uh, but anyway, I'll pull it to look at all kinds of things. And I want to go through and I want to read 
this quote for you uh, so that you see why do we have the law. Stated in positive terms, the Bible paints a very clear picture of what the law can do, namely, reveal the glory and righteousness of God to man, tells us how holy he is. It illustrates in type or picture the person and work of Christ. It declares a person guilty before God, and it gives a knowledge of sin. It will cause offenses to abound, which is the one that we have problems with. And also, it strengthens sin. It curses all who seek to be justified by it and act as a strict disciplinarian or guardian until someone comes to Christ. Good grief. The law hurts, even in a positive way. Even though it's telling us positive things that need to come forward out of that, it still leaves a bruise. Negatively stated, as if we needed that, in terms of what the law cannot do, the Bible says it cannot justify the sinner. It's powerless to do so. It cannot save. It cannot give a person the Holy Spirit. It cannot sanctify the saint. And we need to understand that. That's where we're at in Romans. We are not saved by faith alone, uh, because of the grace alone, uh, in God or in Jesus Christ alone. And then all of a sudden, we're going to do good things in order to be sanctified. That's not how it works. The law or good works cannot sanctify us. And notice it also cannot regenerate the lost or reproduce the fruit of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. It's impossible. It cannot do so. It cannot. And so we need to recognize the limitations and the powerlessness of the law. It cannot help us in the ways that we most need to be helped. Instead, it can tell us coveting is not a good thing. You should not covet. And what we can find out is, is that we actually covet all kinds of things when we get into the midst of it. So how did this happen? Look at verse 8. But sin, notice that that is singular. Taking opportunity through the commandment. And real quick, if you have a paper or something, I want you to mark that word commandment because he starts repeating it over and over and over and over in this short little section here. Sin, that's the sin nature, taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now notice this, the sin nature took the opportunity. It was so aggravated or aroused or provoked in such a way when the commandment you should not covet, you should not lust after things, you should not want what you do not have, you should be content with what you have. It was so riled up, stirred up within Paul. And it took opportunity through the commandment. Now notice what he's showing you here. The law didn't make you sin. The law told you not to sin. But what you found is that even though the basket is holy and good and righteous, it's the things inside the basket, the law basket, that are defiled and wicked and wrong. And that is our propulsion, or let's say the compulsion within us, within our flesh, our sin nature, to want to do all kinds of wrong. And notice what it says. It actually produced in me coveting or lusting of every kind. In other words, there was a multifaceted explosion of lustful desires and cravings that shot forth out of Paul. Now, let me say this real quick. I think it's absolutely refreshing that Paul is so honest about his sin. I mean, when's the last time that you did 1 John 1, 9? You know, sometimes on Sunday we group together and, and we, we, we pray with one another in situations where we're huddled up. If anybody would ever daringly put their failures, their sin out there that needs to be confessed and say, I was wrong in this way. Here's what I did. And this was totally against what the word of God says. I'm so thankful that the blood of Jesus has cleansed me from all unrighteousness because of confession here and, and dealing with it. Other believers might get real uneasy, or I would hope that other believers in the body of Christ would be encouraged to begin sharing their sins as well. And guys, that's what we should do. We're even told at the end of James 5, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might experience healing. That is a beautiful promise. We don't have it all together. We're not perfect. We're not pristine. We're not here to look uh, like, uh, you know, a self-made, uh, constituted, Jesus glorifying 
radiating flawlessness that goes on. When we actually come with that type of attitude, putting on a mask, we show ourselves to be hypocrites and we actually are testifying that we have no need for grace at the moment. That's not, that's, that's not God's word. That's not who we truly are. We're people who need grace every moment, every day. And the fact that we can actually come to one another and confess our sins to one another, that's how that koinonia fellowship, that joint participation fellowship happens. It's not just in joy and serving the Lord and studying the word together. It's also in confessing sins with one another of how we deal with it. Now, this last part here, for apart from the law, sin is dead. In other words, if the law wouldn't have reared its head, sin would have just laid there and wouldn't have even been brought up. That's an incredible thought to me. Because all it takes is the introduction of the truth into somebody's life in order to show a person just how sinful they are. And this is when we move into the great struggle in this passage. And this is verse 9. And verse 9 is what holds all the tension. Because here are the two arguments that come to the table. Argument 1 says, What Paul's doing here and what he does throughout the rest of the chapter is he is writing of his unregenerate experience. So before he knew Jesus, he's writing of the time before he knew Jesus and the role that the law played in convicting him as an unregenerate person so that he would, because of how horrible of a sinner he was, cast himself helplessly at the feet of Christ and believe in him and be saved. And usually it has the idea of submission and those types of things tacked to it. I don't believe that's what it's saying. I believe what we're actually going to find here is that Paul, in the midst of living his Christian life, fresh off of the glory of justification and his understanding that he uh, has been saved and his sins are forgiven and he now has eternal life and how beautiful that is, he actually finds that his Christian experience comes crashing down when the law is introduced. And I want to show you why That is the situation. Let's look at verse 9. He says here, I was once alive apart from the law. Now remember what he just said to us at the end of verse 8. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So he immediately goes to his experience. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, There's the word commandment used for the second time. Sin, singular, became alive and I died. Now that's a very interesting verse. Let's read it one more time and then we're going to embark on this study. I I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. There are two stages to the Christian life. And I think that's very clear from what we looked through with the idea of the carnal and the spiritual. Taking that from uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through chapter 3, verses 4. The past two sermons, if you want to listen to those, that helps uh, bring that out to understand. But I think it's a little bit more defined than that. Think back to the time that you heard the gospel and believed. What did that feel like to know? Uh, that all guilt and shame was removed, that Jesus had paid the price for everything that you ever owed God, and that you were actually set free and given eternal life as a free gift, never to be lost, never to be taken from you. Your salvation was completely shored up, taken care of, locked down, never to be removed. That's a fantastic experience. It's a beautiful, beautiful feeling. But then what happens is we start to live our Christian lives and we start And we recognize, well, how come all this initial zeal and joy and beauty that I had, I just can't find it now? Uh, Why is it that it's so difficult uh, to obey the Lord? Why is it that I feel like that I'm, I'm kind of in a train wreck, and then we start to second-guess our Christianity. Did I really believe? Well, maybe I didn't totally believe. I, don't, I know I told you guys this before. I've actually been baptized four times. What kind of weirdo am I to be baptized four times? That's so weird. Uh, but but a couple of times was is because of sin that was going on in my life that I didn't know what I was dealing with. I didn't know how to handle it. 
And I'll tell you the reason was is because I did not understand Romans 6, and I did not understand Romans 7, and I did not understand Romans 8, and I was all the worse off for it. So if you wonder why are we going so slow through this stuff, it's because it is that important to you understanding the exchange life that has taken place and that Jesus Christ wants to be your life. Let's break down this verse and then we're going to focus on the word alive. Notice number one, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin in the singular here became alive and I died. There's something that happened that he was alive apart from the law. Now, let's take a look at the idea of of the word alive and bring out your chart. Now, I know you're going to look at this chart. Number one, notice that everything in this chart is filled in for you. I think that's important for you to grasp. Notice I didn't leave it blank to where you needed to fill it in as we went along, okay? That's called grace. Number two, you didn't even have to put on pants today to go to church. So you can take the time to go through this chart with me and see how this is going to work. Line it out with me. And you don't have to look up the passages on the left-hand side if you don't want to. Uh, It'll be beneficial to you. And you've got them there if you want to refer to them later. But I've got them all put into the computer system for you so you can see it. So we're going to walk through this and understand. Because the problem we have here is what does Paul mean when he says, I was once alive apart from the law? Does he mean alive and being the fact that while he was unregenerate, he didn't worry about the law whatsoever. Uh, he was he was alive in life kind of idea and his carnal, uh, unregenerate lost life. Is that what he means? Or does he mean that he was alive, meaning that he was justified, but when the law came up and wanted him to do something righteous for God, all of a sudden that's where he experienced problems. Well, let's look through this and see. How is alive used by Paul in the New American Standard Version? Now, this is all looking at the English translation that the translators chose. I've given you the Greek words there. It's not an exhaustive study of all the Greek words, but I've put it in relation to how Paul uses it and how the translators chose to use it. And then if you look at the second page of this handout, I wanted to go to the ESV because it had a couple of instances that were pertinent to what we're looking for that Paul had used that were not included in the NASB translation of how they chose to translate the word, just so that we get a a, a thorough understanding. So notice, Romans chapter 6, verse 11, if you want to turn there, you can look at it, we're still in the same book. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive, there's our word, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Number verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 13, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive, there it is again, from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This word alive is the Greek word zao, and it's, it's got five basic meanings to it. Number one, to be physically alive, to be alive in a spiritual sense is the idea of having eternal life. It's regarding one's conduct or behavior, the way that you live life. It can also be used as full of vitality. When Jesus says, uh, you've come to me, I have living water is the idea he uses to express. It's, it's got vitality to it. Or the idea of being productive, that the word of God is living and active. It can be used that way. And what we find that the context of Romans 6 as we've gone through is the idea of we're alive to God practically due to the spiritual reality in Christ. We've died to sin. That's, that's the contrast there. And we're now alive to God. So that's how this word is used. Now, what's interesting is, is the next one is what we're dealing with here. And that's our Romans 9 situation. And let's look at it because there are actually two instances. If you notice those two blocks, I've got 7-9-A and 7-9-B. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 9. I, once, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Notice the first instance here is the exact same word. So you've got the exact same meanings, but this is the meaning in question for the reader. Contextually, how do we understand that? And notice by looking at the word studies, we can get an idea of how Paul thought in these lines, but they always have to be married to a context. Context determines meaning. Now, what's interesting about this is that the use of the word in the next block became alive. Sin became alive. The sin nature became alive and I died. Now, if you've got a New King James Version, you're looking at that, and instead of became alive, you actually see the word revived that is used there. And notice that it's a different Greek word. It's anazao. 
And it actually means to come to life out of death. It actually speaks of a resurrection that's taking place here. Or to function after being dormant. In other words, to spring into life. And so what is the context that Paul's talking about here in chapter 7, verse 9 in the second part? Well, notice it's the fact that sin, the sin nature was resurrected or it functioned again or it revived and I died. Now, what's highly interesting about that is if you look at the concept at the end of verse 8, for apart from the law, sin is dead. It could be the idea that sin is dormant there, or it's not effectual in what it's doing. If I don't have the commandment telling me I should not lust, then I'm not actively lusting because there's been nothing there to aggravate that. I didn't start licking my chops over the barbecue until I had the smell come wafting my way and all of a sudden saw all that glorious warm barbecue sauce pouring over the pulled pork. Can anybody tell that I'm hungry right now? So, Since that's not there, arousing me into that direction, and there's nothing bad with barbecue, just like there's nothing bad with the law, doesn't change the fact that I have this craving or this desire to see it happen. So before we make a conclusive uh, result of that or or, or bring a conclusion about, well, this is what Paul means and we just move on. It's it's not that easy of a struggle here. Go over to Romans chapter 8, verse 10. Look what it says. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, notice that's the first contrast, Yet the spirit is, and here's the word, alive because of righteousness. And this is actually a little bit different Greek word. It's the idea of zoe. And it means either a physical life or a spiritual life. And here's what it's telling you, that our human spirit is life. That's what it literally is translated as because of righteousness. Because of our righteousness? No, because of Christ's righteousness. That's what it's talking about there. So that's how Paul is used it there in alive. Now, here's what's interesting. You move to 1 Corinthians 15. I tried to put these in order for you so we could just breeze through to the right. 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'll give you a moment to do so. In verse 22, and this is the whole chapter on resurrection where Paul is especially addressing the idea of the rapture here. And look what he says. The word used is actually a phrase, will be made alive. And it's actually got a very complicated Greek word that's now been put together, derived from our initial word. And I'm not even going to pretend pretend to pronounce it because I know I'm going to get it wrong. And so let's look at chapter 15, verse 22. It says, for as in Adam, all die. How many die? All die. Sounds very similar to our Romans 5 language, but look what it says. So also in Christ, and there is the glorious location of the believer, all who are in Christ will be made alive. Notice that that's speaking to a future reality. Notice he's not talking about justification there, things that have already happened in the past. He's talking about something that will happen. This word means to cause to live or to keep alive. And what we see is this is speaking of the future bodily resurrection of all church age believers or what we know as the rapture. That is how the idea of alive is used by these translators here of Paul's meaning. Now turn over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Again, you can just look at it on the screen and want to pay attention with your chart that you have. It says here in chapter 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, speaking of God from verse 4, he made us alive together with Christ. And then he's got it in parentheses, almost like a little glorious whisper that comes along. By grace, you have been saved which is such a good thing. But notice it says here, made us alive together with. And this is even more complicated Greek word to say, but notice it means to make alive together with someone. That's the only word uh, that is used here, uh, both in this passage and in our next one, Colossians 2.13. And look at Colossians 2.13 together. only has this one meaning behind it. When you were dead in your transgressions, notice the contrast again that keeps being brought up, dead and alive, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, that's Jesus, having forgiven us all our trans. 
transgressions. In other words, the idea of being made alive with Christ, and notice it's together with him, is God's act of regeneration motivated by his love. And notice that both of these uses here are being made alive together with the person of Jesus Christ. So just as we died with Christ, we died to sin, we died to the law, the idea of being made alive, this living relationship is how Paul is using these words or derivatives of the word zao or zoe and pertaining to this concept. Now I'm trying to show you this common theme of how it's used and notice that it's always set beside this idea of being dead and being made alive, being dead and being made alive. Moving on here, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15. Now what's interesting about this is this 1 Thessalonians 4 passage corresponds with the understanding that we get in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, look at verse 15. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, and notice the pronouns, Paul's including himself at the time, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Um, And so we shall always be with the Lord. The context is speaking of what the rapture of the church is going to look like, but notice here, Paul is using both instances to speak of the fact that he is physically alive. Now, if you've got your chart there to look at, or if you've got an ESV translation, maybe you've seen some variances, but we're going to go to the ESV for a moment. And Mitch doesn't necessarily have to bring it up on the screen, it's not that big of a deal. But I do want to give you this understanding of if we were to look at it in our New American Standard versions and we see how it's used, turn back to Romans 7 real quick. Romans 7, and you look at verse 3 here, it says, so then if while her husband is living, that word could be translated also as the ESV, alive, she is joined to another man. And we went over this a minute ago, so we understand it. But it's the same word, zao. And notice it's got the same meanings. It doesn't change at all just because the English translation is a little bit different. But it's the idea of the husband being physically living in Paul's hypothetical example. We see how that's one way that it's used. Now here is a A little bit more complicated thing that really struck me as interesting while I was digging through this, and that's Colossians 2.20. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, it says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Now, if you're you're saying, okay, I'm looking at this, what does it mean? Notice in verse 20 when it says, why as if you were, and see right there, alive or living, alive, living. We have living here, it's alive in the ESV and it's the same word, zeo, okay? So when we're looking at this, notice, this is the only instance in Scripture where Paul uses alive, to the best of my knowledge. If you find another one that's different, I would appreciate that. But this is the only instance in Scripture where Paul uses alive to refer to one's unregenerate or their former state before they knew Jesus Christ. Now you might say, why in the world are we going through all of this? Well, if you take a look back at Romans chapter 7, verse 9. What we've done is we've sat down and we've done the spade work of wanting to ask the question, how does Paul use the word alive in his writings? Because if I'm faced in Romans 7 verse 9 with a use of alive that I don't understand, or I can't sit down and just nail it down and say, this is what Paul means here, period, end of story, that's how we're going to move on, done deal. What I need to do is I need to take the time to get out my concordance And I need to go through all of Paul's uses of this word, and I need to record all the Greek words that are used and the meanings that they are so that I can get a thorough explanation of how does this author use the word, not just in Romans, but on all the rest of his literature that he has, and look at the context to help me determine the meaning. And here's what I find. I was once alive, obviously in contrast to being dead in some sense, apart from the law. I was alive apart from the law. How was Paul living apart from the law? In all the instances that we have of the use of alive, 
I don't know that we have anything that gives us a a concluding, resounding, uh, yes, this is totally it. This is totally what it means. And it's especially interesting when you compare it to the other word or the other use of alive that's in 7-9. If you remember, look at your chart and it's the word anazao and it's the idea of being resurrected. Now think about what that is and include that word in there where it is. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin in the singular, the sin nature, resurrected and I died. Does everybody see why that would be important to pay attention to? The idea that sin came alive again, or it sprang into life. It was dormant for a time. But somebody said something, and all of a sudden, there it was. Oh my gosh, I'm lusting again. Where did this come from? I thought I was saved. Why in the world am I going crazy over this thing? How come I can't shake this thought of wanting that car, or wanting that girl, or wanting that ring, or wanting those shoes, or wanting whatever those things, whatever that stuff is. How in the world did that come up again when I was told not to do something? I'm all of a sudden catapulted into wanting the very thing that I shouldn't want. Now what else is interesting here is we talk about context. For once I was alive apart from the law. How did Paul initially use that for our understanding? Well, look at Romans chapter 3. We've got this in the, in the queue. You don't have to turn back there if you don't want to, but if you do, it'd be, it'd be beneficial for you. Romans 3.21. Look what it says there. Just turn back to Romans 3.21 for a second. And this is the great transition in Romans. From the, we're all depraved, no one seeks after God, none is righteous, no, not one. And then it transitions in verse 21 to something that begins to talk about justification. But now, apart from the law, look at the phrase there. Apart from the law, what happened? The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And what is that? Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. In other words, apart from the righteousness that is the law, because the law is definitely righteous, there's another righteousness that's come on the scene. But it didn't need the law in order to be righteous. In other words, it's manifested as righteous, completely set apart from anything to do with the law. Well, now think about that and look again at chapter 7, verse 9. What does it mean to be once alive apart from the law? I think it's interesting that those phrases are together because what we're seeing here is the idea is that 321 speaks of the righteousness of God being manifested apart from the law, and that's Jesus Christ. In other words, the law is not necessary. And so what we see is that Paul is using the concept of being alive that speaks as a, as a believer, but he uses the idea of being dead regarding unbelievers. He was here alive. In fact, Colossians 2.20 is the only instance we have where he would refer to an unregenerate person as being in an alive state in their lostness. And just one instance there is not conclusive enough for me to drag it into this Romans passage and to say, yeah, that's the way that it is. Now you might say, okay, I'm thoroughly confused. So what? What's your point? Let me break it down for you. Romans chapter one, all the way through the middle of three speaks of how depraved and sinful we are and how much we are against righteousness. Now what we find out is the laws brought in to convict us of that sin. And so from chapter three, verse 21 to the middle of five, we actually find out that righteousness comes through Jesus Christ, and it's one way and one way only, by faith alone. God and his grace has given us Savior. And then what we find out is, is that God has much more for us in the middle of Romans 5, and he speaks to us about this new life and all these wonderful promises and blessings that we have. And the way that we want to go about dealing with sin is we need to recognize that we've died to sin because of our justification situation, and we're now alive to God through Jesus, and we now have this ability to present our bodies because of our standing in Christ as instruments of righteousness, and that's what brings us to Romans 7. So is Paul talking about justification issues? No. Is he talking about lost issues? No. He's already spoken about those things. He's talking about sanctification issues. One of the greatest mistakes that we can ever make is thinking that we can try to keep the law in some way in order to appease God. In fact, what we find out here is the idea of becoming alive, being raised again, and then I died at the end of verse 9. That, that phrase, becoming alive, one other instance it's used at is the prodigal son. 
in Luke 15. And when, when the, the man says, uh, for my son was dead and now he is alive. He's come again. He's sprung into life again. He's come back to me again. What we find in the Christian life is when we come to understand that Jesus Christ is our Savior, we believe in him and we are just so thankful for our justification and eternal life. What we also find out is, is that this idea of sinning is, is not on our radar anymore until the idea of obedience and instructions come in and we make the fatal mistake that I talked about at the beginning of thinking that somehow, apart from grace, that we are going to serve the Lord by something that we do. And it's never about what we do. Let me read something to you real quick. Just meditate on this and just listen. Grace, mean that God, grace means that God does something for me. Law means that I do something for God. God is certainly holy and righteous demands which he places upon me. That is law. Now, if law means that God requires something of me for their fulfillment, then deliverance from law means that he no longer requires that from me, but himself provides it. Law implies that God requires me to do something for him. Deliverance from law implies that he exempts me from doing it and that in grace he does it himself. I need do nothing for God. That is deliverance from law. The trouble in Romans 7 is that man in the flesh tried to do something for God. And as soon as you try to please God in that way, then you've placed yourself under law. And the experience of Romans 7 begins to be yours. If you've ever been frustrated with trying to please God and you find out that you cannot, that actually you find out the more good things you try to do for God end up to being more sin and frustration in your life, you actually find out that in a way it kills you. It slays you. In other words, you find out just how weak you are in relation to that. My poor, wonderful son, Nathaniel, woke up this morning with the stuffiest nose, crying, sad, sobbing, freaking out. Me waking up out of a deep sleep, and when you have an infant, a deep sleep is called grace. <laughs> when you get up and you go in there, and he's losing his mind, and here I am, Wanting, wanting, wanting to do good, wanting to serve him, wanting to try my best to care for him in the moment. And all I find is that I'm getting constantly frustrated. It's like I'm beating myself in the hammer with a, or in the head with a ball peen hammer and getting so frustrated in the moment because I really wanted to set out to do good, to love him and minister to him in a wonderful way. And what I find out is it actually exposes just how weak I am in my interactions and responses to his need and how desperately I need the Lord's grace to be ministering through me rather than what I'm trying to conjure up to be the solution in that sense. I have no doubt that the Lord allowed that situation to happen this morning to humble me deeply before I put on a microphone and spoke to you this morning. That's exactly what happens. The commandment comes about and we die. And that's the way it should happen as believers. Something we have to remember, this is a good quote from Miles Stanford. The spirit does not enable the believer to keep the law. That is an administration of death. And that's something that we've died to. And when we find a commandment comes and all of a sudden the sin nature revives in us. And oh, I got to do this. It was laying there dormant the whole time. But as soon as we entertained it, as soon as Satan put something in front of us to tempt us, to try to get us to respond to that, what we find is, is our response was automatically in the flesh instead of yielding to the Lord and our position in Christ so that we could take a moment and present our members to the Lord for his righteous purposes. We weren't waiting on the Lord. Now, what's interesting is, is notice what Paul says, this commandment, and it goes back to the idea of not lusting, you should not covet. This commandment, which was to result in life. Everybody see that? If you could keep it perfectly, it would result in life. If you could keep it perfectly. This commandment, which was to result in life, it proved to result in death. 
Because what we find out is the law actually shows us the extent of our weakness. Yes, Lord, I'm so weak that I need Jesus Christ to die for my sins. And I'm so grateful that Jesus has paid the price on the cross for me. But when we find out that there are good things that go on and the law tells us you shouldn't do that. And we say, yeah, that's a good thing. I shouldn't be doing that in my life. And then we set out to please God with it. What we find is that we actually end up getting slayed. Not that the law slays us. It's a standard that we can't reach even in our regenerate state. We find out that we're slayed because sin takes over and proves how helpless we are in our flesh. So notice it proved a result in death for me. Now, how did that happen, Paul? Thankfully, he tells us. Verse 11, for sin, that's the culprit. Notice it's not the law. Notice you can't play the victim and blame the law. God, it's your fault for giving the law. We don't blame God for this. Notice it says, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment. In other words, when the righteous law came and he learned the commandment, I shall not covet, sin said, there's my opportunity. And it reached through there. And notice what it said. It deceived me. How did it deceive Paul? It made him think that he could deal with the law in his own power. It deceived him. And through it, it killed him. It slayed him. It showed his flesh to have no power. And we should know that the flesh profits nothing. Let me give you an example of that, like law keeping. New Year's resolutions. Trying to quit smoking. Or I just need to be a better husband. Or my son watches a cartoon and they come to this realization in the middle of it. It's time to be a hero. I promise you this. Anytime we pull up our superhero tights and we say it's time to be a hero and we slap the cape on, we're going to fail. We're going to set out for failure. We are jumping off the building and not able to fly. Why? Because the power is not in us. This is an incredibly depressing message to come to. But I want us to recognize that we need the law because we don't recognize just how weak we are. We are powerless to save ourselves from our sins, and we are powerless to do anything about the problem of indwelling sin. We get deceived into thinking that we can. Well, from now on, I'm not going to say that. From now on, I'm going to do it this way. From now on, I'm going to... man. Let's just say from now on, I'm going to sin every time I entertain the flesh. And it's only by the grace of God and his spirit that I'm going to do anything pleasing to God whatsoever. Because it's not me doing it. It has to be Christ in me. So notice what happens out of that. It kills you. It slays you. Verse 12. Here's this conclusion. I love it. So then the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous. And good. How do we know that this passage is speaking of Paul as a saved individual and what it looks like to work out his own salvation? We say the Christian life, you know, I don't like that term, but 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 Christ living his life, taking advantage of this newness of life that's been made available to us instead of the old letter of the law. What is that? Well, number one, we know that the law is holy. Only a regenerate man could say that. Only a saved person can make that conclusion. Only somebody could come to recognize that have they come in contact with Christ. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I want to take you to one last passage before we close up here. Take a look at Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians is so excellent because in the middle of 3, or the beginning of 3, Paul exposes himself. He shows his vulnerability of where he's at thinking-wise. We say, well, wouldn't it be the introduction of the law that would bring us somebody to conviction of sin so that they would believe in Jesus? Well, that may be what Ray Comfort teaches, but that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, that, that wouldn't even be the Jewish mindset of Paul. As he would have thought about it before he knew Christ. Look at Let's see here. Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. The idea there is uh, beware of those who are making outward appearances what counts and thinking somehow that establishes righteousness and holiness or the Judaizers of that day. Verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the, notice this, Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, now watch this, and put, 
Look at it. No confidence in the flesh. Mark that. No confidence in the flesh. Now watch what Paul does. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, if you think that you're righteous by your fleshly means, let me one-up you here. So Paul's going to give us a one-up trail here. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. I was high-ranking. I was up there. I was part of the elite. Look what he says here. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now watch this. Here it is. As to the righteousness which is in the law. Because that's what we're talking about, right? Keeping commandments has to, has, concerns itself with what we do. Look what it says here. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless? Blameless. Blameless. Think about that for a second. Paul's conclusion in his unregenerate state of how he used to operate was, I've kept the law perfectly. You know what that tells me? It tells me that he didn't come under conviction of sin because the law pointed it out to him. That's not what it was. In fact, that's not what Jesus does when Jesus introduces himself to Paul in Acts chapter 9. He doesn't say, Paul, have you ever coveted? Have you ever lied? You ever stolen anything? You ever lusted after somebody? You ever blasphemed God? He never says that. He knocks him off his donkey. He says, why are you persecuting me? And it's interesting because Paul turns around and calls him Lord. That's how it's used. In fact, the instance it's commonly used for introducing the law in order to lead somebody to justification is the rich young ruler. And if you look at Matthew chapter 9, that's speaking of rewards, not go to heaven when you die. So that was used as a means to show somebody the attitude they should have in obeying the Lord. What you find is, is the rich young ruler was not willing to sacrifice what he had now, so that he would have a great reward in the future. So what are we bringing all this together with? The law shows us how wrong we are, shows us how weak we are, shows us that even though we might think for a moment, well, I could keep this, well, this will be pleasing to God. We actually find out that it ends in our death. The law will slay us. That's what it comes to mean. We will be deceived by our own sin, thinking that somehow we can please God. And the conclusion that Paul comes to in this passage is, yes, the law is holy, it's righteous, it's good. We can't argue against it. It's awesome. But it doesn't have power over sin, and neither do we. We do not have power over sin. Thank God for the grace of Jesus Christ that doesn't just justify us, but the grace that also sanctifies us and how desperately we need grace moment by moment hour by hour thank god that christ is the worthy one let's pray father we thank you that in examining this and understanding what does it mean to be alive once apart from the law and exactly what happens when the law is introduced into our system thank you that the whole subject of the law has been done away with as far as we're concerned that it asks us to do something for you, and yet Christ has done it all in grace. Father, I pray that our hearts are stirred in gratitude and thankfulness, that any time that we would even attempt to please you in our lives, to step forward and say, I ought to do that for the Lord, we're going to fall flat on our faces. Instead, we need to wait on the Lord to wait on you so that you would tell us what you want us to do for you. Thank you that Jesus Christ meets us not just when we are weak, but in our utter helplessness and weakness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.